you look at a factor that strengthens a community, reduces fear, increases trust, increases engagement, it's not churches, it's not sports teams, sorry Celtics, it's not schools. What was the top most powerful agent in every study? It was pets. Hello, welcome to Cambridge Forum. Today we're continuing our transformation series, looking at the ways in which COVID has acted as an agent of change in our lives. I'm Mary Stack, the director of Cambridge Forum. The subject of today's program is relationship roller coaster. And we can all attest to how the pandemic has impacted our personal lives and our interactions. People found themselves in lockdown with a unique array of people, partners, kids, roommates and casual acquaintances. The stress and insecurity of this domestic experiment turned up the heat on all sorts of relationships. Some people witnessed the death of family or friends. Others were deprived of seeing neighbors or colleagues. Kids missed school friends, teammates, and we all lost the support of community groups like choirs. As we slowly emerge from our COVID cocoons, a significant number of relationships have cemented or ended. Meanwhile, millions of Americans have become the proud owners of pandemic puppies. To help consider the various aspects of this question, we have three wonderful guests to join us. Rich Slatcher is a professor of psychology at the University of Georgia, where his research focuses on understanding how people's close relationships affect their health and well-being. Andrus Holder is executive director of Boston Children's Chorus, which harnesses the power of music, to cultivate empathy while connecting kids from the city's many diverse neighborhoods. Mark Cushing is founder and CEO of the Animal Policy Group and author of Pet Nation, an inside look at how pets have captured the hearts and homes of American families, creating a national cultural transformation. Welcome to you all. Well, people that were really stuck for emotional support and interaction and love turned to pets. So data shows that 11 million people became new pet owners during the pandemic. So there are certainly benefits attached to pet ownership and we know some of them, companionship, emotional support, sense of security, just being three of them. So Mark, in a time of great uncertainty, do you think that pets might offer us a more reliable presence than humans? Well, Pets offer it in times of great uncertainty or times of acute certainty. It, it, the truth is, pets haven't changed. Cats chase string, dogs chase balls. But what we've seen is this transformation of the relationship of pets in American culture and families uh, in American communities. And then COVID put that on steroids. And you had this a phenomenon of, and, and by the way, we're now close to 70% of American households that have pets. So it's not as if a handful did before and then everybody got the memo and went out and acquired a pet if they could find one, which was not easy. But, uh, you know, that what's really happened, and I, I know Rich understands this well as, as an academician, the human-animal bond has been not just discovered and, and affirmed in academic studies, but it's been experienced on a wide scale basis across the country, rural, suburb, urban, it doesn't matter. And 
with an engagement with pets, Mary, your oxytocin level goes up and your cortisol level goes down. It makes you happier, period. You just, you feel better and people pick that up. And when we brought pets inside, you know, I'm a baby boomer when, you know, pets were kind of accessories. They were outside, they came in some of the time, so forth. There were ex exceptions to that, but generally that was the case. When they came inside and people began to experience dogs and cats, it's not just pandemic puppies, um, on a daily, regular basis, they kind of got the news that this was something special. And so uh, what happened in COVID was it gave a lot of people an excuse. Hell, I'm going to be home. My partner, my wife or husband are going to be home. Our kids are going to be home. Wouldn't this be a great time? And, and pretty good idea, actually, to have a puppy. You also had people that worked in workplaces that were pet friendly. And this is a, a great, great study done by Carrie O'Hara um, that people that work for companies that are pet friendly and allow you to bring pets into the workplace who don't own pets like their company better. They like their boss better. They're more likely to stay with the company better. You know, pets just sort of pick up the energy of a place. And I'm sure Andres knows with, with the kids in the Boston course. Um, but, but what's interesting is when people say, well, have pets become the new children? I say that's an insult to pets. They have a lot better deal than children do. I mean, you know, we treat our pets now, you know, in, in, in a royal fashion. Cats have always looked at humans as staff, but even, even dogs now, you know, kind of rule the world in a way that, that kids never could. And pets don't have a teenage phase. Now, I have five children and, you know, and I love my daughters, four of them are daughters, but, you know, there was about a three-year period where, you know, not so much fun, you know, but pets don't have that phase. You know, they show up every day. So in a pandemic, no matter how you're feeling, just the ability to, you know, if your cat just crawls across your back of your neck as you're reading something, an email or, a, or whatever it might be, or your dog who wants to continually play, you know, good things happen and people figure that out. And it's, it's uh, very powerful. And it, it, changed, it changed relationships. People saw their partners in a different context. They'd, they'd never seen their partner with a pet. In many cases, you hear people surprised that their spouse or partner or children so quickly took to having a pet. And, and many got a second pet. And that's the other thing occurring uh, is the New York Times did a great study of the number of new pet owners who said, when and if I go back to my workplace, I've got to get another puppy. I can't leave Sparky home by herself. You know, she's got to have someone to hang with. So it's, it's not done unfolding, but it's been, it's been an interesting, interesting thing to watch. What other benefits besides the oxycontin rush you mentioned? Oxytocin, just to, just to clarify. Whoa, careful. <laughs> <Yeah>. No free <laughs> drugs. <laughs> You get a PhD on your panel, they're going to they're gonna point some things out like Sorry. that. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Well, Andres has also got his under the desk, his dog. So uh, I think he's going to make a, a little surprise appearance. But anyway, sure. um, so what other things do they do? I mean, I know that they're very good company. They give uh, you a routine. They give you a sense of worth. I'll they love it. you for no reason. No, it's, I want to go back to my the first point I made about the human-animal bond. Um, there are now... 32,000 entries in the Purdue University Veterinary College Animal Welfare Library regarding human-animal bond studies. So what was seen about 50 years ago was kind of folk wisdom. Oh, I know you feel better when your dog's in the room, but that's like your grandmother's soup remedy for flu. I mean, you know, well, there have been study after study. So the most important thing, Mary, that 
that's now the case is that pets have been studied in peer-reviewed studies in academic journals and confirmed to just improve autistic children's engagement with their family, okay? Uh, a sexually abused teenager's dealing with, you know, her emotions and sort of how, how to ever trust again. Hospitals now, which 30 years ago, if, if, you, if somebody saw a dog in a hospital, they'd, they'd run down the hallway and say, get that dog out of here. And now find a hospital that doesn't have uh, animal assisted therapy and you won't find one. New York's a great state, you know, just not too far from you, which, which had a fierce ban on dogs in hospitals. It was so proud of the fact that you can't bring a dog in now and dogs are everywhere. My wife chairs anatomy at Mayo Clinic's medical school here in, in Arizona and, and Mayo has canine assisted therapy all over their system. So dogs are now part of therapy. You take seniors who aren't eating well in nursing homes. This is my favorite. And they found by watching fish in aquarium regularly be fed and they watched their eating habits, guess what? They went and ate more regular themselves. You have uh, soldiers back from Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, with yes, PTSD and all the studies there. So it's not just a feel good thing, you know, it's a do better. And my last piece, and, and New York's my favorite example, and Boston wouldn't really be any different, is what I call the social capital of pets. And there have been studies in Perth, Australia, San Diego, Portland, where I'm from originally in Nashville. And when you look at a factor that strengthens a community, reduces fear, increases trust, reduces isolation, increases engagement, it's not churches. It's not sports teams, sorry, Celtics. It's not, you know, all the factors you'd look at. It's not schools. I'm not saying they all don't play a role, but what was the top, what was the most powerful agent in every study? It was pets. Because two strangers walking down the street with no dogs typically look the other way. It's, it's an awkward hello. Two strangers walking with the dogs stop. There's a 10 minute conversation. They don't have sleepovers. They don't now go to dinner the next night together. And they don't talk about wealth, what kind of car you drive, where you went to college, any of that. They basically say, what's her name? What's she like to eat? Where'd you get her? I mean, in other words, they become this sort of commonizing agent, you know, this sort of democratizing small d across Absolutely. the culture. And, and so it's, you know, I make the case that, that the cheapest medicine for this country, which right now could use some, is pets. And we still have many places, uh, particularly low-income apartments that prohibit pets from coming in. And by the way, they're not allowed to legally, but nobody stands up and pushes it. I'm, I'm involved in that now. But uh, the point is the presence of pets, which, you know, they're basically everywhere now. And, and to some people that's annoying. Uh, the Kempton hotel chain, you probably all know, yeah. Kempton's everywhere. And, and uh, they used to be a great client of mine in Portland. They were started on the West Coast. They now have floors that are dedicated to non-pet owners. I, I laugh every time I say this. I can't imagine 25 years ago, go to floor three. That's for the non-pet owners. Everywhere it's like else. smoking used to be. <laughs> it's like smoking. Exactly. So, uh, so, it, so we could talk I'm going to play devil's that. advocate a little bit here. So um, obviously uh, you can have too much of a good thing. So although I do think that they are absolutely the emotional currency because actually both of my kids live on opposite coasts. They've met all their friends through getting dogs. The dog park is the new place where you meet everybody. 
And in a place where everybody's on their phone, it's the only time they're off their phone actually interacting. So I do think it's a new phenomenon. I just wonder what it says about the American psyche. And I also wonder what it says about our relationship to other people, whether it's easier somehow to have a relationship with a dog. Is it something that's... Well, uh, I'll, I'll defer to Rich, but my comment as, remember, you know, uh, neon advisory, I'm, I'm a lawyer, so what do I know about anything here? But, uh, but the truth is, um, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I don't, I don't think your affection for a puppy uh, dilutes your or diminishes your ability to have empathy for a human. And in truth, you gave your children as great examples uh, you can blame yourself, not me, for bringing them up now. But uh, the truth is, <laughs> pets lead to engagement with people. And that's the social capital factor. So I, I think pets have taken people that, that might be shy or you know, introvert to the extreme and made them comfortable in engaging with people because it's a safe, safe thing to talk about. And, and I, I, I just have a hard time with the argument. I've heard that argument and, and I argue for a living right as a lawyer, but uh, I've, never, I've never been persuaded that, that, that it comes close to overcoming the social capital and the positive individual and broader value of, of learning how to take care of an animal too. Because that's the other thing, animals humble you. You know, we all know what you have to do with a pet many times during the day, okay? And it's something that, you know, you didn't grow up thinking, I was going to do that. And, and they just make you take care of things um, in a way that, that drops you down a peg. And maybe that's a healthy thing. Mm, less self-obsessed, perhaps. So, Rich, a quick uh, comment from you on that, if, if you yeah, have. So, so to Mark's uh, point um, about sort of substitution, I, I don't think they're I think they're adding. I don't think they're, it's a substitution for, for our in-person relationships. And, and I'm so glad that you brought up all the great research that's been done on this, Mark. Um, it's making me very excited to look at this aspect of our data. We uh, included, I think, so we have nine, no, 11 waves of data collection now in our survey. And at wave three or four, we asked about pet ownership to see, did people purchase a new pet? Did they already have a pet? But regardless, you know, if they had a cat or a dog or multiple things. Um, and so we haven't looked at that data yet. And now I'm really eager to look at it to see, you know, did that, we can test some of these questions, you know, did it add to people's relationships? I don't think it substituted them. And I think it acted probably, and, and I think you got at this with the, the, you're talking about how it raises oxytocin, lowers cortisol levels, uh, I think it really has buffered people's stress, you know, but it could be that it's just what we call in, in statistics, a main effect, meaning it just, it's a net total positive, regardless of what's going on with stressors in your life. It's just a great thing. Um, and, and I know from personal experience, we've got a couple of um, part Maine Coon cats at home. Those are those, you know, huge yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of false advertising because they're a mix. So I expected them to grow to these huge things and they're actually just normal cat size, but they have all the other features of a, of a Maine Coon. And, um, and we have, my wife and I especially have appreciated them so much in this pandemic, uh, really. Yeah, well, you I think know what we're, the we're closer than ever, the cats and us. We've just got some questions. Uh, sorry to shift here, but Shannon has said, a surprising pandemic era revelation for me as a choral singer I was part of a virtual choir recording clips on our own, which we eventually mixed into the whole. I found it unexpectedly difficult and at times unenjoyable to sing on my own. 
I had no idea how much energy and joy I was deriving from the other members of the group, especially as I'm deeply introverted. <laughs> so that was I'm really fascinating. I mean, I'll let Andres jump in, but I was really fascinated by the introverted comment, obviously, since we were talking about that. But yeah. I think, I think um, people like Shannon, who are really, really introverted, have realized how much they actually like relationships and like people that, that, you know, um, it's really important, even if it can be stressful to go to a party and you might get a little bit socially anxious. I think that's pretty typical of what we've seen in our study. People, introverts and extroverts have really deeply missed those kinds of social interactions. So Andres, jump in. I mean, anecdotally, we have the same experience with our singers just, you know, at the beginning, it was super exciting to see yourself in a virtual concert and all the boxes zooming around. And at the end of it, it was really a drag where we saw engagement just really dramatically shift. After you do five of these things, you're singing your one line, you're not getting the, the you know, singing in harmony, I sing a C and you sing an E and we both are, oh my God, we just made a chord, this is so powerful. That doesn't exist in the virtual choir. You're just singing your note and your line and forget about it, you're in your room hype yourself up for a performance on camera. So that was a really, really big challenge for us. And it, it really became a challenge to really try to understand what is choral singing without the in-person interaction. That's why we had to go outside. Also, the, the, the actual physical energy, it's so hard to measure that. There's a physical buzz you get from singing in a choir that I, I don't know how you'd even monitor it, but the, the sum is greater than the individual parts. I'm singing to the choir here, telling you. This. And are you back in person now, uh, Andres? Are, are you, and we're, I not, um, are you not. So we're fortunate that um, individuals ages 12 and above can get vaccinated. We're hopeful that that age range will, will expand. BCC works with children ages 7 to 18. Um, so we did a, a goodbye event for our seniors, but we still had a virtual concert on May 29th. It was we're, we'll see how it goes for us to be fully in person in the fall. We are hopeful that we can, um, but we just have to monitor all the federal and state guidelines. We actually just announced earlier today an initiative called We Sing, where we're going to be singing in public parks with you know members of the choir. And it's not a performance. It's supposed to be you, 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 and you coming together. And we're going to learn some easy songs and sing outside together because the joy that we derive from singing in you know a parking lot, which is not a super sexy thing, we just felt like we were a million bucks just getting together and making music and hearing harmony. So we want to share that with folks who might, you know, have an hour or two to spare in public parks. We'll be doing that uh, July and August in many parks around the, uh, the Boston area. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, different questions here. I don't know who wants to field them. Um, two, one, one woman's talking about age and how is it easier uh, how or is it easier for healthy, independent people over 80 years um, dealing with lockdown? And somebody else said, I'm curious about why loose community ties are so important to me. Only being able to see my biological family and one or two friends felt catastrophic. So anybody got anything to say about that? I mean, that, that's exactly, I, I think that, that kind of gets to your question and, and the point that I made about missing out on those casual conversations, I think. And it's something that, you know, I'm a social psychologist. This is what I'm supposed to be an expert in. But the vast majority of us um, who study this stuff have studied our closest relationships, almost ignoring 
these kinds of casual interactions. And it's really gotten me rethinking the nature of relationships and how important these casual interactions are. And it's really interesting to hear this from, from, from just the first couple of questions that we've gotten from the listeners um, that they feel the same way. Somebody else has said, I feel individuals have been a lot more empathetic and emotional, uh, emotionally available during the lockdown. However, in most areas where lockdowns have eased, individuals have shifted back to their old ways of being. So I believe for most individuals, especially extroverts, it will be more of a conscious choice to appreciate the things that they haven't appreciated before and make active lifestyle changes. Hmm. It's a great question that I think about all the time. Um, you know, what's going to happen as we come out of the pandemic? People have talked about a possible roaring 20s, a roaring 2020s, you know, as we come out of this. And I, I can see it from both perspectives. I, I completely see your perspective, Mark. And I, and I also uh, uh, see Shane who asked the question, uh, their perspective. Um, because I know as humans, we habituate to things. We habituated to wearing masks. We're starting to habituate most of us to not wearing masks now that, that we're getting vaccinated. Um, but it may spark some relatively long-term change, you know, and, and, and the question is how, how will we see that coming out, right? Like in the roaring twenties, you saw, you know, um, uh, in the roaring 1920s, you saw flappers and new, you know, really kind of um, exuberant societal things going on. So will we see that in, in music, you know, kind of more optimistic music and in, in, in other kinds of cultural things that we maybe can't even envision right now. That's, those are the kinds of things that I'm going to be on the lookout for to see if, 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 if our joy and excitement and, and changes in the way that we've been thinking about things, if that's somewhat fleeting or if it's more longer term than that. You, you're actually queuing up the next program that we're doing, which is about the has pandemic been a force of good? We're looking at all the innovation and new ideas and pivots that we had to make in science, in art, in vaccine production, all the things that were overnight had to ratchet up the game. And some of them were very positive for us if, you know, if we stick with them, as you say, if we don't go back to our old ways. So I'm going to ask you a personal question now. You don't have to answer that if you don't want. But I was interested in each of you thinking about, from your own personal perspectives, which of your relationships were impacted most by COVID? Um, I don't know if you've even thought about that, but um, I know I miss singing in a choir and my kids are on opposite coast, so that was tough. So I know that that was the hardest thing for me. But, I mean, you mentioned uh, your kids, uh, your teenagers. Me? Uh, and scout, scouting, Rich. Yep. You said they were... Yeah, one about. of my one of my teenage sons uh, is into scouting, and that's been really hard because they haven't had trips. That they did do a couple of socially distanced things where they slept in separate tents, and we went out and camped for a weekend. And it worked. I mean, it was definitely <laughs> better than not doing that. But it was really hard to keep the younger kids engaged doing Zoom. You know, scouts starts at uh, age eleven or twelve, and um, and and keeping everyone engaged. Um, uh, so yeah, that's been that's been a real challenge, and 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 I think the broader point about what's being missed is we've missed out on uh, these kinds of civic activities, going to church, um, community organizations, uh, chorus, you know, these things that that are the fabric for society. Um, 
there's a, a, a book that some of you may be familiar with by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone. And it talks about some of the disintegration of thing, you know, these things like Lions Club and bowling leagues and things like that. Um, and I wonder if maybe we'll see a, a, a just slight reversal maybe of that trend after the, as, as we come out of the pandemic and a greater appreciation for these kinds of group societies that, 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 that bond us together. Um, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had one change, just one that was uh, many perhaps, but one I'd highlight. My group, I have nine people that are part of the animal policy group. We're in six states. None of us live near each other. And before, the, before last March, the end of March, uh, we emailed, we texted, we had conference calls, all right? I decided at, at the start of pandemic, we're doing everything on Zoom. If I'm going to call one of you, I'm going to, I'm going to Zoom you. I want to see you. I just want to look at you. You can look at me and talk. Well, I know my team a lot better. And I have a whole set of work colleagues across the country where we now engage much more frequently throughout the year through Zoom. And it's live. Like I'm looking at you right now, Mary, in front of a nice you know, bookshelf. I, get a, I see a book behind you. And I wonder, you know, what'd you think of that book? So I ended up getting to know a lot of people better because different than a phone call. And yeah, you can talk for hours on a phone, but you don't, you don't typically. I, I had much more engagement with more people consistently through Zoom that was live and real and actually enjoyed it. Like everybody, I got tired of big group Zoom calls, um, but I just found that to be a positive. I echo Mark. I think, you know, uh, I moved to the to the area, to the greater Boston region during the pandemic. My partner and I packed up our apartment in D.C. BCC called and said, do you want to do this thing with us? And I said, absolutely, let's do it together. So come July, new city, um, new new apartment, you know, new, new walk patterns for Chico the dog. And, um, you know, the loss of proximity with friends in the D.C. area you know, very difficult to manage that, particularly during a pandemic. But I have just found that the city of Boston has really just open arms. It's, it's been wonderful to be in conversations that how that's how you and I, Mary, found each other and, you know, random Zoom rooms and you send a private message and say, hey, I've never heard of you or your organization. Would you love to chat? And people have been really willing to, to do that in a way that I think had I moved to Boston during non-pandemic times, I don't think I would have, you know, exchanged so many conversations with so many great people. That's interesting. And I don't think I actually answered that part of the question, um, Mary, but thinking about it, um, I think the thing that I miss the most is students. Um, and, and wow. you know, we, we did a hybrid model this year, but the vast majority of students were online and you know those of us that were in person were masked up you couldn't see i couldn't tell if i told a joke if somebody thought it was you know you saw see a little eye crinkle maybe and a little head nod like this but you know it's hard to get without the the feedback that you have and i can't wait to teach in the fall and to be back in person and i imagine andres feels the same way you know and gosh i my my heart goes out to you uh moving in a pandemic we moved to Athens, Georgia, a year before the pandemic. So we had a little time to acclimate, but yeah, I'm, I, I can't wait to get, I think this has laid to rest the idea that we are moving 
to completely online universities. Certainly we have more options now to teach, but I think it, it has shown the importance of in-person social connection mm -hmm. when it comes to that, to the classroom. That's great to hear. So I'd like to thank everyone for joining us, listening to the Cambridge Forum discussion today about Relationship Rollercoaster, how COVID impacted our personal lives. With Rich Slatcher, Professor of Psychology at the University of Georgia, Andres Holder, Executive Director of Boston Children's Chorus, and Mark Cushing, lawyer and author of Pet Nation, an inside look at how pets have become treasured members of the American family. Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, the Mass Cultural Council, the City of Cambridge, and you. So please step up and donate via our website, www.cambridgeforum.org, where you will find a podcast of this and other forums, as well as details of our upcoming programs. I look forward to seeing you all at the next event.